Malcolm Honline is in Jerusalem. He is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning and good Arab Shabbos and almost Shabbos here. Is this one of those uh, conference trips? Because I know February always calls for a couple of uh, big group trips that include Israel, or is this simply a uh, a private journey to the Holy Land? No, this is uh, official business as always, and we have our mission in Israel that begins <coughs> and after our visit to Spain next week, which is uh, part of the mission that we take uh, the group there as we do every year to a, a different country, and then we convene in Israel during a very interesting time here. Oh, that's for sure. Which okay. is always true. Yeah, it's always true, <laughs> but, but this is especially interesting. It's 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 interesting to watch uh, political geniuses go at it. Everybody's got their own agenda. Everyone's handling it in the way that they've been trained to handle it in their political careers, and it's fascinating to watch it all come together. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it's coming together, but it's fascinating <laughs> to watch. <laughs> I'll tell you. We'll get to that coming up. You know, here, and I, and I know, you know, we joke about whether we discuss local stuff or not, but obviously there's, uh, uh, there's some stories that are, uh, uh, that are out there that are of concern to people. Yesterday, Michael Fragan was with us. He briefed us on the fact that the New York State Legislature, the Assembly specifically, is having trouble getting an anti-BDS bill to the floor. You know about the criticism that the mayor of New York has been under from certain sides regarding his uh, comments at an APAC meeting. Is there a certain atmosphere, Malcolm? Is something going on different than usual, or just some of these things are you know, so public and have come so to the forefront that we're just noticing it more now? Is there any more reason to panic now than we ever did before? Well, I don't think there's any reason to panic. I do think, though, that there's a confluence of factors, and what I always say is in the show, when we discuss the wide range of issues that there there is a confluence of so many things of real consequence it's not like there's only one issue you have iran with the nuclear program which has vast consequence the upheaval in the middle east the global campaign of delegitimization the events in syria the 170,000 missiles facing israel there are so many issues of importance there's no reason to panic or get handled them but also, I think when you're dealing with issues of such sensitivity and such intensity as the peace negotiations and some of the exchanges that have taken place, people are not careful with what they say or they react emotionally and not intellectually, and that's very dangerous. You know, we have an old adage in Judaism, that right. wise people are have to be careful with their words. Well, all people, and especially political leaders, and we, we saw it on both sides, the American side where you had the comments about warmongering and against the senators who were supporting the boycott legislation, uh, the, uh, not the boycott, the sanctions against the Iran legislation, um, or driving a path to war, or the secretary's comment about uh, boycott. He certainly doesn't support boycotts, and he was saying is that if things you know, break down, then Israel could face a boycott. And that was interpreted as saying, well, that's a legitimate response if, if things break. And they're not going to break because of Israel. Nobody said there'll be consequences for the Palestinians if because of their obstinacy the, the talks uh, don't don't progress. Uh, it may not have been the intent, but it was the perception and the fear that in Europe this would be taken as a license where you see increased efforts at boycotts there. They're not successful in the sense of, of having... Uh, a massive impact. They are harmful 
to to Israel and and create a momentum which is very dangerous. The the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, the global campaign of delegitimization, are both very serious. And I've done many interviews here during the last couple of days to try and communicate why uh, the prime minister talks about the boycott with such seriousness and why the sensitivity to it. On the other hand, the comments by people here on a range of issues are, and, you know, the apologies that follow, it's, it's really unseeming, it's unnecessary, and it's not productive. You can express a difference of view, you can even be angry, but you don't use and I, and I, uh, the kind of rhetoric, and I don't believe you should personalize it. Yeah, well, w- which is worse, the comments or the apologies, or you'd like to get rid of both? <laughs> I would like to do it all that people, in the first place, you know, it, it respond in a constructive way, even when it's a criticism, and, and you know, express their view or their concern, which is a legitimate thing to do. Yeah, so is it and, only the tone that bothers you? Is it only the way it comes no, across? Obviously the substance at times. I mean, when the secretary made the remarks in that setting, I can see why people right. felt that that perception is created. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not diminishing the significance of the concern about it. I wish everybody would, would be much more careful. I think calling the senators warmongers uh, has a backlash effect. It doesn't help. But or, And the only one who benefits from this kind of division is the Iranians, who look at this and say, oh, you see, they're pitted against each other. We don't have to, to worry. The, uh, the Congress wants the same thing as the administration. The difference is the administration says, you know, let us negotiate, and then we can enact it. And they say, look, let's enact it. Then you negotiate. We're not going to pass. We're not introducing new sanctions. Right. It's just that we're passing the bill that will empower them if the talks fail, and then say, if the, and the other side says if the talks fail, then we'll enact the, the uh, additional sanctions. Right, I understand that. But going back to Israel for a second, it, when Lieberman, for instance, comes out and you know and, and gives us his pro carry statements, right? Politically, he's doing that for what reason? Whose favor is he looking for when he does that? Because you know anybody who, who who knows his positions when it comes to peace processes has got to be a little skeptical about his approach to this right now. Well, you're referring to a speech he gave today right. in which he addressed um, uh, comments by uh, Naftali Bennett right. by others that were critical of, uh, of the thing. secretary. But, you know, where they called him obsessive, et cetera, I think that was excessive. I think saying that they're concerned about the uh, one-sided pressure, it's a legitimate comment you can make. Whether it's true or not, you know, the people can debate and the secretary can answer it. And I think he's answered in strong terms. Uh, and responding in part because the, the criticisms were personalized. Uh, the, the impression, though, in, in that it's created in the world at large is that, that all the pressure and all the criticism is generally directed at Israel, although there are demands and stuff made on the Palestinians as well. But the world doesn't say we're going to threaten, and if this breaks down, and Kathy Ashton's comments, you know, because of the announcement of the additional housing, which is the same housing they announced already the two or three times, in different phases of the approval process. So the, the, I think Lieberman is trying to carve out a position for himself. He's made a number of comments, uh, lately, and these are not knee-jerk reaction comments. These are well-prepared and well-thought-out, and he's certainly a very shrewd and intelligent, uh, man. So he's not doing this, uh, uh on an off-the-cuff basis. Right. Uh, basically, the Israeli media hates Naftali Bennett. You agree with that, right? 
I don't think everybody hates Naftali Bennett. I think he, you know, he's a smart guy. He's, you don't think the media made more of this in Israel than it really should have been, especially because of the alleged the friction between him and Sarah Netanyahu and the prime minister, et cetera, et cetera? Well, well that, that, that's, a, you know, that's a sport, daily sport here. Right. Uh, that's just normal course of events. So, I, I mean, I think, look, he's out there. He's making comments all the time. He has challenged the prime minister. He, you know, so the headlines are often... I think pretty much uh, what one would expect. Right, so we could agree that if, that if certain other people in the Israeli government would have made similar statements, they may have been treated differently by the press. Well, yeah, because also it's not taken as seriously. I mean, he's a major player with a big party, and, uh, you know, obviously what he says counts. And if, if he enters a split, <clears throat> because he is within the administration... Right. Um, and has a lot yeah, of seats. Yeah, and has a little more... Will you see him during this trip? Who's the he? Naftali Bennett. I have seen him several times, and I will see him again. And he's going to address us when the conference convenes uh, a week from Monday here. He doesn't. He everybody does, else. He doesn't ask you for advice on whether he should tone things down, does he? Uh, I don't discuss my private conversations, but I will say that this is an issue I've raised with many people. <laughs> All right. Um, could you explain what happened? The suicide bomber blew himself up at the gates of a Syrian prison Thursday. This is a Syrian rebel attempt to do what? Well, for one thing, they were trying to free prisoners, and they did succeed in freeing a, a bunch of prisoners. Uh, the fact that they, you know, carry out the attack in, the, in a, a part of Damascus, even if a sort of suburb or semi-suburb of Damascus, is always significant because that's you know, the critical test for, for Assad. Right, you've said but, that for a long time. Pardon me? You've said that for a long time, kept our right, focus exactly. on that, right? And I think uh, um, uh, that, that it's, again, a further demonstration. And when you've had now the barrel bombs dropped by the Assad regime, you've had a series of terrorist attacks. You know, that during the five days or so that they were in Geneva, 1,900 people were killed. And... You know, children are being killed. 11,000 children have been killed in Syria in amongst the 130 or 1,000 or more. Millions and millions of refugees, people homeless within Syria and outside of Syria. And the um, and the rebel groups now are fighting each other. You saw that al-Qaeda delisted or disassociated from the, uh, the al-Qaeda group in, in Syria. Uh, so there are internal rivalries that are still going on and fights about uh, you know the the role of each uh, of each of the groups and Assad it seems uh, successfully stalled off the uh, Geneva talks. There's nobody who thinks right now that you're going to have regime change, right. and they sort of ended it in a deadlock at the uh, at the moment. But that doesn't mean things aren't happening. There's still weapons flowing into to Syria and the. Um, and I think that uh, most analysis is that they have uh, blocked at least the immediacy of, of any development in, in Geneva, and everybody can walk away saying, well, it didn't collapse, they didn't kill each other. They're, the fact is nothing was accomplished. At the same time, we see that they're not removing the chemical weapons, as they had promised, that only 5% were taken out, and the most serious ones are being stockpiled still in Syria. <clears throat> they, they will play this game and re-promise and re-give and re-give the same thing over and over again that they gave in terms of um, uh, getting rid of the uh, the chemical weapons. I have not asked you this in a couple of months. Is there now tangible support 
from the U.S. or Israel for the Syrian rebels, whether it's militarily, financially, I don't know, even politically? How would you characterize support that they're getting or not getting from the U.S.? The U.S. gives uh, some weapons to the rebel groups. There are a lot of people have questions about that and, and who gets it and what they do with it. Uh, they have huge warehouses of weapons, uh, but it falls under different groups. Uh, so Israel, uh, I would say, is not involved. They are involved in a humanitarian basis, which is quite fascinating, but uh, uh, in aiding the refugees in Jordan and even in Syria itself, but and with the hospitals they've set up, but I, they certainly are not providing weapons or guidance to terror, the, the uh, rebel groups because most of them would pose an equal danger to Israel. And you're, uh, I mean, it, it, based on what you just said a couple of minutes ago, you're uh, convinced there ain't no regime change there for quite a while. It's not, it, it's unrealistic to think that it's going to happen in the near future. Uh, absolutely, unless somebody kills him. Um, and look, he, he's blocking food and medicine to, to some of the worst hit areas. They supposedly were letting some civilians leave home, and then they say they're not letting him leave the, the area. Uh, one of the interesting things I thought this week in, in regard to it, which I've, well, we've talked about a lot, and I've tried to raise the, the flag about for a long time, and that's the thousands of, of foreigners, tens of thousands of foreigners, but thousands with European and American passports who are now fighting and becoming jihadists. Saudi Arabia, from which a large number of young people went and volunteered to fight in in Syria. Now they're cracking down, and um, they say there's uh, between one and two thousand twenty-year-olds or twenty-somethings who are fighting in in Syria, and Saudi Arabia, recognizing the danger of what happens when they come back, right. is is trying to stop it. And frankly, I think everybody else better be waking up to this reality. Another domino effect, huh? It's unbelievable. Exactly. America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listener sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is with us. He's in Israel, a typical February for him where he checks in from different countries on Friday. It's always a big travel month for him in the Conference of Presidents. Uh, the terror plot against the Yerushalayim wedding hall, I mean, obviously you're there, so maybe you know more details about uh, how they try to do this. But, uh, again, this is uh, yet more evidence that the enemy is always out there trying to plot, and it's not just missiles from Gaza, it's also potential bombs, God forbid, in, you know, in, in major areas like Yerushalayim. Uh, even though we see this headline, it's going on on a daily basis, right? There, there is. Uh, constantly attacks. You saw the statistics that showed that there was an increase, and not in the number of killed, thank God, but in the number of attacks from uh, West Bank areas coming, whether Hamas or from uh, from uh, Fatah sources, that uh, shows that there is an ongoing uh, uh, challenge, and the response is effective because they're there on the ground, and it underscores again why Israel is so uh, insistent on the Jordan Valley and others why they can't, A, rely on others, and B, why it's really essential that they have uh, troops there because of the intelligence can't be substituted by drones or by even electronic eavesdropping or other things, all of which are important and components of it. But, uh, but, but the essential thing is to be able to be on the ground so that you can uncover these kind of plots. They are ongoing and they're not likely to be diminished. What is the uh, – who did I see this week was proposed – 
to um, uh, uh, have a military presence along the Jordan Valley. It was not the UN, was it? No, we talked about Abbas suggested that NATO, oh NATO, with right. U.S. participation. Right. But Israel long ago said that learned a lesson that when you put foreign troops, not their own uh, foreign troops along the border, they're fine as long as everything is quiet. Once there's fighting, they take off and they run. And we remember in the Philadelphia route, the Europeans who were supposed to be there, as soon as there was a real challenge, they were nowhere to be found, and they took off and nobody saw them again. Uh, so the the record in this regard of, of foreign troops is, is not good. The Lebanon border elsewhere did, did not work. So the the argument, therefore, is that Israel has to have its own people there along the border. And Abbas countered with the proposal that for an interim period they would let NATO forces... Right. Uh, if NATO was on the Gaza border, would there be less missiles and rockets? Um, <laughs> I, I, I tell you the truth. First of all, it depends on which side of the border they were on. The likelihood is they would be on the Israeli side because they're not going to put themselves on the Gaza side. Yeah, I asked it a little bit. I, I, I asked it somewhat facetiously, but... I uh, know you did. Right. The, but, po- the but point... I, I'm afraid that people listening won't understand that. Yeah, and true. we'll start saying maybe we should put troops you know, along the Gaza border. I mean... Remember, there is, you know, you do have the multilateral, the multi-force in Sinai, which has generally done a pretty good job. And the reason is, if you could break that down simply, it worked there because, they are the exception because... Because the Egyptian government was cooperating, and because they, you know, the United States and Israel, there wasn't a uh, a real challenge uh, to their presence, and their role is, is more limited. Um, and and people should view it as a real exception because it would what you just described would not that formula wouldn't work on the other borders you mentioned earlier. It's right. Um, is there a? Ch- I mean, if I read the Times article this morning uh, correctly, and on a Friday I'm so bleary-eyed, I'm not sure I did. But so there's a potential now for the next leader of Afghanistan to be a real Al Qaeda Nick, as we would say, or Al Qaeda Nick. Is that? I mean, there are other well, elections facing an election, and uh, there is a possibility that that the candidate would be uh, somebody who has certainly ties and and uh, and running and as we, such. And we and we remember that Al Qaeda. Came out of, of Pakistan right. and came into Afghanistan, so they they have a, a you know deep roots there, and and uh, frankly the situation is deteriorating there as in Iraq, and we have the withdrawal of American troops coming, and neither situation is one that people can point to and say these were great successes given what what is developing and Karzai certainly has taken very hostile positions towards the United States, uh, which is very unfortunate, but. You know, is the way we're rewarded for spending trillions of dollars. Right, but if leadership would transfer to someone like the candidate they're writing about, it would be even yeah, worse, it, correct? It'll be much worse. Uh, of course, it's very serious, and you know, Afghanistan is an important place. It's not the most important, but it's certainly significant. And another option is that Iran extends its influence even more inside Afghanistan. Uh, we know that they've used it as a transit point, and some of the leadership, when they thought that Iran was going to be invaded, you know, took off into Afghanistan. So it, it has, a, you know, more significance than some people would attribute to Afghanistan in and of itself. Uh, on Capitol Hill, you mentioned Senator Mendendez last week, and you've discussed in general how he's been out there uh, in regard to the sanctions on Iran. He's still as strong, right? His speech this week was was as strong as ever you would char- characterize it or not? The speech by? Menendez, in terms of um, a sanctions. Oh, the, the, on the bill. The, his speech was very strong. He 
the the Republicans in the in the Senate are urging that the legislation go forward. I think that they are offended by the characterization that in any way their legislation was to drive to war. They would say that the opposite, that it's driving to peace, that the le- additional leverage and pressure on the Iranians will make them take the negotiations more seriously. We see the the plane loads of uh, of Europeans going to to Iran, and the reports of the erosion and the undermining of the effectiveness of the sanctions, and the United States has, has expressed concern and warnings, but, uh, you know, the Europeans are, are running there, and you don't hear Kathy Ashton, who never misses a chance to criticize or threaten Israel, <laughs> um, really taking a stand. And I, I saw that a German official talked about the Italians going, and a British official said that he was on a plane and it was full of German businessmen going, and well, but well, but in essence, you have the the breakdown when the petrochemical alliance, especially because of now they're allowed to ship uh, oil and and uh, being able to trade in gold, which enables them to to buy the gold in oil, uh, to buy oil with gold, and therefore don't even go through the banks that are still sanctioned. So, I think that they look at this and say, look, the additional sanctions are important, and they're pressing Harry Reid, right. uh, the leader of the Senate. To schedule it, he is not inclined to do so. In the administration, the president said he would veto it, and right now we only have 59, so that's not a override of a veto. Although the number who will vote for it will be higher, I, I think it's unfortunate if this ends up pitting the Congress and the White House against each other because the, you know the, the Iranians just smile at this and, and benefit. And the the important thing right now is to, that the message be very clear. If I had one action. I told them many times I would prefer to see them move an aircraft carrier that right. they took out of the Persian Gulf back. I think we have to send stronger and stronger message. The United States is going after some of the companies and has sent um, messages that Iran is not open for business. Wendy Sherman may testify to this. But the question is, how do the, how do the others perceive what's happening? Zarif says the foreign minister of Iran uh, challenges the United States, the... the um, uh, and, and says that they, they're not going to dismantle anything, that they're going to keep everything in place. We're not going to give up any major parts of our nuclear program. The, the head of the Atomic Energy Organization in Iran says it will take them uh, uh, hours to, to go back to where they were and that they're increasing more at 5% than they ever did because of the decrease at 20%, but that they're, they're developing the more advanced uh, Centrifuges, so they're challenging everybody about it, and and they say, you know, that on the Iraq nu- uh, reactor, which is a plutonium one, that they're negotiating, downgrading it, but they're not going to take out the major installations where you have tens of thousands of centrifuges that are still there and still spinning away, and I think um, it's it's the basis for the concern being escalated that those in the region and those outside the region are saying look this look at the reality right uh, we, we we've given them the benefit they've reaped some billions of dollars even though we haven't released obviously the funds and a lot of the funds that were were supposed to have been given the foreign minister denies you know it says something for once positive about the or constructive, rather, that the Holocaust shouldn't have happened, and then he completely rejects it and says he never said it, <laughs> he didn't mean it. it you know, it, it just tells you that, that there's this is the, 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 the sham that this is somehow a more moderate regime. Right, but is, 
exposed all the time. Malcolm Honline live in Israel. But if I could just get back to the political end of it for a second. So so APAC and the pro-Israel community, let's put it that way, not to single out APAC, they look at the situation in Washington. And, and I, I guess the issue is that we know the President of the United States is trying to ease up on all this, more diplomacy, etc. We discussed this in regard to the State of the Union. And on the other side, uh, you know, the, the, the reality is that, that those who care about Israel generally, again, you know, we, we know, we know a lot of people out there care about Israel. But you know what I'm saying, that generally they want to see stronger sanctions and like you said, you know, symbolic, at least symbolic, if not further type of action in the Middle East. So this, uh, so apparently this puts the pro-Israel community in Washington, let's use that term, in a difficult situation. So I ask you, from a point of analysis, is there a reason to let up as people write about whether APAC should or if they in reality are you know, letting up on this effort because they see how things are going with the president and Congress? Is that a legitimate approach? Would you, if you were advising you know, people who fight for Israel and Washington, say anything other than keep the pressure going? I do advise people in Washington about what to do. Well, that's what I'm We're saying. We're very much involved in it. And the answer is that I think, uh, by the way, I, I just got a message earlier that APAC, in fact, is pulling back and saying that this is not the time to go ahead with the legislation. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we have to, again... No, do you think that's a mistake or not? I think that getting ourselves in this position is a mistake. But it wasn't, it wasn't the Jewish community, it wasn't APAC that drove the legislation. Right. It was the senators and it was Menendez. Understood. So Americans and, and who care. And Chuck Schumer to his credit. Right. So, and so, they were doing it under, not because of political motivation. Understood. But now the and re- I think it's bad for the Jewish community to get caught. I understand. You know, for, but now with the, with the pro-Israel community, with Americans who care about Israel watching this situation closely, and you just named some of the names who are in that leadership role, is it legitimate or not to come up with and execute a strategy of holding back a bit, of pulling back a bit? Is there any reason for that? Or would you encourage or hope that the pro-Israel community in the United States, Jewish or not, would continue to pressure at the same level? I think we have to support the senators who, who, who are standing up on this issue, but I do think that we could have fashioned this, and I did suggest it, in a way that we, we don't want to see uh, an exercise of a veto, because that sends a, the wrong message. We don't want to see congressmen forced to have to make choices between, let's say, what they think is the concern of the Jewish community or, or their position in Iran and, and the president. So I think backing that anything that says, look, let's give it a chance. We're not going to enact the legislation anyway now. It wasn't going to be enacted for six months. That That is a viable option. But I think the senators are saying, look, we need to send this message now to Iran. They, they are taking advantage of the opportunities that have been given to them, and, uh, and we need to have this passage of the, of the legislation so they understand what they face if they continue to obfuscate. All right. All right. Uh, does Israel need a new president? Is uh, President Paris's term coming to a close? Because I see that. Uh, Professor Shechtman, the Nobel Prize laureate, is already launching his campaign to be president of Israel. Uh, yes, his term ends. It's his second five-year term. He's not eligible for another term, even though there's some people who think that they might change the law. I do not think that's the case. I think he's... Well, is there a precedent for that anywhere, of a Jewish politician getting a third term through some so through some deal? Can you think of any time that ever happened before? <laughs> Recently, in, in memory, yes. And <laughs> so, you think they're going to pull a Bloomberg in Israel? Uh, 
no, because he doesn't he doesn't have the resources. But no, <laughs> the, the, he's look he's ni- he's over ninety years old. He is frail. I think he he recognizes it. I don't think he he's going to stand. You have a, many candidates. Sylvan Shalom supposedly is a candidate. Ruby Rivlin has long been a candidate. Shechtman just put his name in. There are people talking about Sharansky. There are people talking about Donny Itzik. Uh, there are many candidates. It's a great job. You get that beautiful house. You know you. You work as hard as you want to. You have a shul on premise too, so it's a right. really nice arrangement. Um, so th- there's a lot of competition for the job. I do not think that Paris will, will stand again in in the summer. The vote though takes place in the Knesset. It's the, not a popular vote. The Knesset members are the ones who elect the president. And the polls show that the people would like it to be a popular vote, and that they would have a say in uh, who gets the position. If it was a popular vote, do you think Sharetsky would win it? Sharetsky doesn't have a big political base, but he has tremendous respect. You know, he's symbolically... That would be so he, cool uh, if he was president. Uh, a very significant uh, uh, statement. But uh, the others also haven't really run uh, you know, nationwide campaigns. It, it, it's probably not easy to get a broad-based support. So Sharansky offers... Um, a good platform and basis given his personal history and, oh. and the respect that he's earned. Could you imagine if his career closed with being president of Israel after everything? That would well, be unbelievable. To close with it, it's only ten years, you know, two five-year terms. He could, he's still going to have a lot more left his career till he gets to be ninety, like Paris. Hey, there are precedents, Malcolm. <laughs> there are precedents for the extermination of term limits. Come on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. But uh, I think anybody 10 years as president probably is enough. It's interesting to watch how critical, and this, you know, I don't know if you already spoke to him or will be speaking to Bibi, but it, it is so interesting to watch how desperate Israel looks to keep close ties to Turkey. You know, there are some countries that would have just thrown up their hands already at this point and said it's just not worth dealing with uh uh, with Turkey, especially because they're, they seem so untrustworthy, and Israel just keeps going after them, sort of begging them to become a real, uh, you know, a peaceful partner with them. Well, I don't think they're begging them. Turkey is a critical country in the in Middle East, and given especially the turmoil, no one knows what the future will be there. You know, they face an election too, and Erdogan has a lot of domestic opposition. We saw the big demonstrations. For what Israel is doing is taking away the pretext from Turkey. That the Mami Mamara business, uh, Mami Mamara uh, compensation, and they've offered him, there were reports of 20 million, 10 million, nobody knows exactly the amounts that were being offered uh, at this point. Uh, but I think what, what Israel's trying to do is to remove this irritant to the trade between Turkey and Israel is, has doubled in the last year. There are, uh, I don't know, so many flights of, of Turkish air back and forth from Israel every week. Uh, so the tourism has picked up again, and the, the exchanges on a personal level amongst the populace. Um, and, you know, the hope is that there will be changes in Turkey that will enable them then to have uh, positive relations. It would be very important, especially as they move towards a Mediterranean uh, alliance, let's say, with Greece, with uh, Cyprus, with uh, Turkey, with other countries being part of it. So the you know Turkey is a, is an important player. It's a, one of the keystones in the Middle East, and I think that's why Israel keeps trying to hold the door open. But I wouldn't say they're pursuing them. And the uh, the uh, now I'm going to sound silly. I just can't remember it. The uh, the conference that um, was it Syria or Iran that was advi- uh, uh, not Geneva. Yes, Geneva. Was it Geneva? Syria. 
for Syria. The Syrian talks in Geneva. The Iranian talks in Geneva. Who was the Geneva Who was the shock that was invited to that? Was there a surprise who was invited to that conference? Or am I thinking of a, of a Durban-type conference? I'm trying to think now. Okay. I know. No, well, we had the Davos <laughs> conference where Rouhani was feted, where he was the, probably the most uh, sought-after person. People tell me he got a huge audience uh, when he spoke. Uh, some of the Israelis, by the way, uh, participated and attended the session, didn't walk out when, when he spoke. Um, then you have Geneva 1, which is the Iranian talks, and Geneva 2. The ah, Iranian talks. so that's what it was, Geneva Conference including Syria. That was the surprise, right? No, the, the including Iran. That, that was the debate, and Iran was not invited. America invited uh, the Secretary General extended invitation. America objected. They withdrew the invitation. Now the talk is that Syria, that Iran may be invited to a seat at the at the next round of uh, ah, of talks. So I'm sorry I'm doing this for you. So You're it was getting a lot of odds. So so it was the Geneva <laughs> conference about Syria, and the right. outrage was that Iran was invited to participate. Right. And ah. the, the Secretary General had to back down. I knew by the end of the week I'd get it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you're entitled. Thank God. Um, by the way, did you know there was an Amnesty International concert? In Brooklyn, New York, this past Wednesday night, and I would bet you, knowing who performed, that there were a lot of members of our community there. Now, I don't know what your feeling is, but you know that Amnesty International has not always been the friendliest Israel. You know that. I would certainly say that 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 was true, that they have not always been very friendly, and they do not go after some of the bad guys that they should be focused on. I'm not calling calling for boycotts, but people got to think sometimes before they, you know, decide to buy a ticket somewhere. You want to see good music? Go to Paul Anka at the end of July in Israel. I'm sure you heard that he's coming to the uh, Holy Land again. Yes, he is. So there you go. Others are are coming here, too. And by the way, you know, we've seen the rockets this week. Uh, Again, for those who who follow them and are telling Israel what to do, to look at what what, three three rockets uh, just yesterday, two hit in Ashkelon, and the Air Force hit back at some of the storage sites. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's a reminder that the, these forces are, are in there trying to undermine now in Gaza. They're making more of the rockets themselves. Um, the the uh, You have uh, the Al-Qaeda presence growing, and even by Al-Qaeda's own admission that they were down to the tens in, in after 9-11, they're now in the tens of thousands, and they said even entire armies now are affiliated uh, uh, with them. So the and the, the the growth in the Sinai, which Egyptian government is is doing much more about in conjunction with the 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 government of Israel, the hundreds of terrorist groups you have operating in in Syria itself. So the. You know, people should be careful in offering blind and easy, you know, suggestions about what the security arrangements and why is Israel so insistent about the Jordan Valley. There's really good reason for it, and people should be prepared to explain it and to argue for it and to to make the case about what, what is uh, the the Egyptian government. You saw their statements about their daily fight in in, in the Sinai against the attacks on their soldiers and their police, and they say there's daily execution. So when they're required to have this uh, strong response, it's justified because that's the the, the future of the signing, the instability. Do we get another Somalia, or do they actually um, rein them in? And the other thing is, you know, it, it, when you talked about uh, amnesty, well, where's the outcry about the fact that executions of political prisoners in Iran has shot up under Rouhani? And scores of them, 
50 in the time since the negotiations took place. And... Hello? Malcolm, you there? Oh, boy. Looks like we lost him. Nothing wrong with uh, some great Benzion Schenker selections, but I think we have Malcolm Honline back from Jerusalem. Malcolm, are you there? Yeah, I never want to compete with Benzion Schenker. <laughs> well, in this case, I'm giving you the opportunity. Um, you were just mentioning about Amnesty International and some of the things you'd like them to notice. Yes, that the, the number of executions in Iran is skyrocketing since Rouhani has, took over, and especially since the negotiations with Iran, 50 people have been publicly executed. That He just sentenced to death a poet. He went out to one of the regions, outlying regions, and, and signed the papers to execute a number of the, of the political activists, anybody that he perceives as you know, trying to assert local cultural identity, etc., and you see no outcry. I don't see uh, uh, Amnesty International carrying out demonstrations and condemnations and doing the things that they do in other instances. And Gulahani keeps getting a pass. And they can say whatever they want and do whatever they want. The, the violations of human rights, the, the kind of behavior that they've engaged in. And there's no price. Yeah. Maybe they'll say they don't know about it. Maybe we should start sending them notices well, about everything going on. They should listen. They better listen to the show, and they'll find out a lot more about uh, about that. But fourteen human rights activists put to death. Isn't that what Amnesty is supposed to be be addressing? I would think so. By the way, just tying up some of last week's stuff as I as I close things out and wish you a Shabbat Shalom. Uh, Oxfam says they're not pro BDS. Yes, they they aren't, but they said that it was incongruous for for uh, Johansson to continue as a spokesperson for right. uh, SodaStream and work with them. There is nothing incongruous about it except their response to it. And I think the the um, you know this highlighted the BDS movement and maybe even inspired and hopefully SodaStream sales will not be hurt and people should go out and reinforce it by buying their their products. Um, but, they, you know, they have factories all over the world. They have one in Mala Dumi. Right. And exactly. it, it's interesting because I, I had given a statistic, I think, on the show about the number of Palestinians who work there. But And it, it is something in the neighborhood of 400. But there are another 400 or 500 Israeli Arabs working there. Right. So the majority of the employees are Arabs in that, in that plant who get equal pay and equal rights. And they're protesting these things because they don't they don't want to lose their jobs and good income. Right. Well, that says it all. Uh, Malcolm, enjoy Jerusalem and have a Shabbat Shalom. There he is, Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Weekly update every week, 7.40 Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.